Hey, welcome to Bible Foundations, where we study books of the Bible one chapter at a time. Thank you for joining me today. I want to remind you of where you can watch and also listen to our podcast. Just go to YouTube and type in Ignite Global Ministries. You can subscribe to my YouTube channel. On there is a playlist that's called Bible Foundations with Ben Dixon. You can also, for the audio version, just go to iTunes or to Spotify, and you, you can obviously subscribe. Please do drop a review in there because it helps other people see our podcast and join in to what it is that we're studying. Also, you can share this with others. We would be glad that you would do that. So thank you for tuning in and sharing it with others. We've been going through the book of 1 Peter, which has five chapters. Last time we studied 1 Peter chapter 1. Today we're studying 1 Peter chapter 2. And so go ahead and grab your Bible, get comfortable for about 30 minutes because we're going to dive right in. Let me start by giving you a simple review of 1 Peter chapter 1. What we looked at was an introduction, and by that I mean, who is the apostle Peter? Who is he writing to? He was writing to primarily Jewish, or sorry, Gentile Christians who had been scattered throughout the various regions because of a level of persecution that they were su- they were going through, they were suffering, and he talks to them a lot about hope. That's the primary theme, in my honest opinion, and the, the three things that we targeted during our study of 1 Peter was a great salvation. Now, when anybody's suffering or going through difficulty, it's good to remind them of who they are and why they're suffering. What, what's the purpose to all of that? So they have a great salvation. Hold on to that which you cannot buy, that which is greater than silver and gold, and that is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of your sins through his precious blood. And then he dives into talking a little bit about purpose and suffering and trials. He's telling them, like, you're not suffering in vain. God's moving in your heart. God's moving in your world. And he doesn't waste anything. He uses it, even though he's not always the author of the pain that we're going through or experiencing. So he wanted them to have a sort of strength. And when you have strength, you can face anything. That's what he wanted. And the last thing that we talked about in 1 Peter 1 was the importance and the motivation for godly living. And this is where he moves from the trials and the temptations, having the power to derail our faith, and we need to be mindful to live according to the scriptures. And so he's encouraging them, like, you know who you are, you know whose you are, you understand there's purpose and trials, but now you have to be properly motivated to follow the example of Jesus Christ. He is our example. He's not just the payment for our sins, but he's the pattern for our life. And so Peter's trying to root them into the truth of the word of God. And today we're jumping right into 1 Peter chapter 2, and there's a lot to cover. There's 25 verses. And what I want to do, like I always do, is basically just go through these sections with you. So we'll just go one section at a time. And it looks like today I have um, four of them. And so uh, as we do that, the first section I want to look at is just the first three verses. So let me go ahead and read those and then provide some commentary to them. Uh, Peter says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. If you have tasted the kindness of of the Lord. Those are just the first three verses. And what I'm titling this little section here of the passage is Necessary Actions for Growth. That's what I think Peter's targeting. When we look at verse one, he basically tells them to renounce their former sins. Now, when he speaks about these sins, he's not just talking about actions, but he's really labeling attitudes. So he says this, look, he says, put aside 
all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. These are like categories of sins. It's not just a action, an action, an isolated action. It can be, but it also represents a host of sins that can come from our heart and from our lives. And when he says put aside, the Greek word here would be like put off in a, it's a forceful term. Like when you're really dirty and you come inside and you want to get those dirty clothes off you as soon as possible. You just, uh, you're doing it forcefully. You're doing it quickly. You're throwing that stuff into the washer. He's saying, put that stuff off, put the sin um, and all of those labels of what you once were, pull that stuff off you, put that stuff off you as fast as possible. And I would say to you that perhaps one of the greatest hindrances to our spiritual growth is unrepent, unrepentant and undealt with sin. This, to me, is one of the reasons why we don't grow. Sometimes people say things like, well, I'm too busy, so I can't get around to reading the Bible, or I'm too busy, so I don't have time to pray, or I'm too busy, I can't go to church. The reality is, um, busyness is probably not the reason why we're not growing. That's not really a good answer. I think that it's usually sin. It's not always sin, but it has a lot to do with unconfessed, undealt with, unrepentant sin. And we always need to be mindful and monitoring our heart. Do we have sin in our life that we need to confess and give to the Lord and ask him to cleanse? The Bible's clear that if we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive, but he also cleanses us from unrighteousness. So if we have that sin, I believe Peter's targeting that saying, renounce those sins in your life. That is your former way of life. It's not who you are anymore. And Jesus will take that as fast as you will give it to him, just like getting off those dirty clothes. And in verse two, Peter essentially goes after this. He, he's talking about recapturing a passion for God's word. He says, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, this is an interesting metaphor. The Bible has tons of them, but this metaphor as uh, as it pertains to the word of God and growth, he's using a, a newborn baby, like a newborn baby is longing for the milk of the mother. When a newborn baby is hungry, they don't speak, they scream. That's what they do because they cannot talk. And so they make everybody in the house know, I'm hungry, feed me. And they eat milk. They don't eat solid food. And Peter is saying, you should desire God's word in the same way that a baby desires their mother's milk. That is a metaphor. That's a picture of how hungry for the word of God that you should be. And then he even uses language like this when he says, long for the pure milk of the word, like a newborn baby. He says, long for it. This means to desire, yearn. It means to crave. So the question could be asked, do you crave God's word? And if you do, there's something attached to that, and it's called growth. If we're going to grow in the Lord, we need the word of God. For us to have the word of God in our life in an increasing way, it requires that we crave. There's this innate desire. It's inside of us. It moves us toward action. And that's why I'm calling this section Necessary Actions for Growth. It starts with that desire, and then it moves towards action uh, the, in the word of God. Peter says, pure milk of the word. Why was he using this word pure? This word means unadulterated. It means not deceitful. In those days, merchants would add water to their milk to make more profit off of it. They would water it down. If you went to the marketplace, you're trying to find the pure milk. You're not, you don't want watered down milk. You want full concentrate. You want the real thing. And so this would have been a picture for them. He's saying, long for the pure milk, the full concentration of God's word. Don't water it 
down. And then, and, and what he's really going after here is saying what I think is true in every generation. Every generation has this seduction, this temptation to water down the truth, the full concentration of God's word. He's saying, don't do that. Long for all of it. Whether it encourages you, corrects you, instructs you, whether it cuts you, whatever God's word may do when it comes, as you read it, as you study it, as you apply it, whatever it is, is good for us. And we want to long for that. And the final thing in this section for for necessary uh, growth, I believe he's saying, remember God's goodness. And look what he says here in verse three. He says, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. That's kind of worded funky in a way. The phrase really means if we have, it's like since we have. It's not really if you have. Um, He knows it's assumed. He knows they have. It's just worded uh, in a way because it's translated. So since we have tasted the kindness of the Lord, or the word goodness could also be used there. Remembering the goodness of God delivers us from the attitudes and the actions of our former way of life, our sins, who we used to be. We've got to remember God delivered us from that way of life. Jesus has given us all that we need for life and godliness. We can move on because Jesus paid for us to do so. And part of the way we do that is we remember God delivered us. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. We give our whole life to him and surrender, and he gives us the ability to step beyond that. And then Peter moves from this conversation about necessary points of growth into what I'm calling, he's like calling them up as to who they are as not just a person, but a people. And I'm saying like, we are a chosen people. That's sort of what the next set of verses really sort of Uh, shows us as we read them. I'll read to you verse 4 to 10. He says, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture— And this is where he quotes Isaiah 28. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but but for those uh, who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. But you, speaking to the believers, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what's he doing here? I don't know if you remember this um, conversation that Jesus had with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. But Jesus asked them a question, who do men say that I am? Several of the Gospels record this, but Matthew 16 stands out the most to me. And they answer, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say the prophet, which would be Deuteronomy 18. Uh, But then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says back to him, you are right, um, and I call you Cephas, or I call you uh, Peter is what he says. You you are Peter, little stone. And he says, and upon this rock, I will build my church, my ecclesia, uh, my called out ones, uh, my ruling body, my governing people, um, those that are moving forward. 
the kingdom of God on the earth that I have called for my mission. He's saying, on this rock. Well, what is this rock? Uh, Catholics would tell you that the rock is Peter. They're saying that because Peter means little stone, that that's the rock Jesus was referring to. There are some traditions that believe that. Protestants believe that the rock was Jesus Christ himself, and Peter had a revelation because Jesus said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't come up with this on your own, but my Father in heaven, he spoke this to your heart. It is why you can say it with confidence. In other words, God revealed to Peter that Jesus was the Messiah, and that is the rock for which the church is built on. Well, how do we know that? Well, Peter interprets himself. So we have a whole movement, which we've had for a couple thousand years in, in Catholicism that's, that's built around the authority of the church uh, and the papacy and the pope is built around this idea that Peter is the first pope and um, the authority of the Catholic church comes from that verse in Matthew 16. But really, it doesn't mean that. And Peter here in this passage actually interprets, I believe, that section of scripture when he interacted with Jesus. And here you have this language about rocks and stones. And so he's talking about, behold, I lay in, or uh, let me back up here. He says, and coming to him, capital H, as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also are living stones. So he's saying all of the people of God are living stones, but the choice stone, the rock, the cornerstone, the capstone, that's Jesus Christ. And Peter is absolutely meaning to travel back in time to that conversation that he had with Jesus, because then he says, which is quoted from Isaiah 28, behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. The cornerstone is the most important stone when a house is built. In modern days, we build a foundation, we lay it in concrete typically, but they still do throughout the world build like this, where you have a large heavy stone, and it is the first stone that you set, sort of like in a retaining wall. It has to be level. It has to be situated properly because every other stone is going to be built on that one stone. So it's most important that you get that one stone right. And so the stone is none other than Jesus Christ and the revelation of who he is. That is what the church of Jesus is built on. It is built on Jesus, and therefore it is built to last. And Peter is absolutely saying that when he's quoting this. And then he goes on to saying that we are a royal priesthood, a holy people, uh, a holy nation. Uh, and he's saying this corporately. It's not just individual. And listen, we have to move from the me to the we. Um, that's what this whole picture is about. It's, it's about living stones being built upon one another so that we become this holy house. And he caps all that language by saying, you are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a chosen people. It's not just individuals. When people say, I am the church, and they refer to themselves as an individual, that's not accurate. We are the church. We gather as a church. The church is not the building. The church is the people. And Peter is saying, we together, God's intention is to bring about his holy house, his holy people, and assemble us together that we would walk together and fulfill the great commission, the mission of Christ that he has put into our hands. And he's saying that you are called to bring forth praise and thanksgiving and intercession. When he calls us a priesthood, that's exactly what we do. We minister to the Lord. 
and we minister to the people, but we get the opportunity of bringing the people into this priesthood, into being a living stone. It's not just we're the separate priesthood and then there's everyone else. It's that everyone can become part of this holy nation. And so it's really exciting. And so when the we, uh, when the me becomes we, something special happens. And Peter is calling them not just out as individuals, but as a holy people and a family. He moves from this part of the conversation to verse 11 through 20, which I, I think he's speaking more about authority. Um, honoring people in authority. And he says here in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If, you, if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is, it, is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Well, there's a lot there. So I'm going to consolidated into a few statements. And the first is based on verse 11. He says, you are foreigners and exiles. And as a result of that, abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. In other words, based on the previous uh, text, remember who you are as individuals, you're purchased by the blood of Jesus. Um, you're saved, you're set apart. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy people. Because of that, know that you are foreigners, you are exiles, um, your citizenship is in heaven. When he says you're foreigners, he's saying you lack the rights and the privileges of earthly citizenship. In other words, you have a higher citizenship, which means you have a higher principle that you ought to live by. And that's why he's saying this. You, you have a citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, and that is greater, that is more important. Let's just put it this way. It's more valuable so this is why he's saying abstain from sinful desires. Be aware that you're going to have conflict in this world, and so you should not have conflict in your soul. That should be settled. You've got to know who you are, where you're going, and what you're doing now in this place at this time. But if, we're, if we have this conflict where we struggle over who we really are and where we're really supposed to invest and what's really most important, he's saying that's that's going to wage against war against your soul because those enticements and temptations will have more places to land their hooks. And so he's warning them to stay uh, away from that. And in so doing, he's telling us a strategy of spiritual warfare that the enemy is going to use in coming against us is people of virtue and principle that are living Christ-like lives. The enemy is going to use people who, as unwitting vessels, who do not believe in Christ, who don't have the same mindset, don't have the same mission, um, to slander and to come against. I believe people that P 
Peter is talking to are undergoing great verbal persecution, and violent persecution is about to commence, if not already happening. Some of them are losing their jobs because they're Christians or they're part of the way, and they've already been scattered. They're trying to figure out how to live life abroad. They no longer have the homes that they once had, and so as they're the diaspora, the scattered ones, Peter's trying to help them figure out how to be established, and part of that is you've got to be okay on the inside. You, you may not have all the external stuff figured out. You may not know where to go or what to do externally, but internally, you cannot have the same conflict. That's why he's talking so much about remembering who you are and whose you are and why that's important. And then he goes into verse 13 and he says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. And then he goes into saying governors and kings and so on. And the word submit here. In the original language, it means to arrange in military fashion under a commander. It also means to put oneself in an attitude of submission. So Christians are called to live in a humble and a submissive way in the midst of a hostile and godless society. That, that has not changed. We are going to have conflict, externally speaking. And he's saying, you have to submit yourself for the Lord's sake. It isn't just like uh, to be pious. This isn't to just look humble. This is that you're a people under authority. Our greater authority is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why his word to us is very important no matter what we're walking through. And he's saying you need to have a submissive attitude. Submission is an attitude at first that becomes actions. It's not just that you obey because you have to. It's that you submit because Jesus says to. That's what it means to have a submissive attitude. And we need to ask him for the attitude to change because actions follow the attitude. And Peter goes after that not only once, but several times in this letter. Peter goes on to say that we do this for the Lord's sake. It's not about us. It's not about our rights. It's not about our opinions. It's about what is best for following Jesus. What brings the most glory to him? Rebellious conduct that comes from Christians brings dishonor to the mission and the message of Jesus. There's this terminology in the Bible to, that we are called to be above reproach, and, and that means that there's this baseline of right and wrong, and, and we ought to conduct ourselves in a way that is above board, that's full integrity. And this is the same type of language. So when he's saying, place yourself under authority, do it willingly. Uh, don't do it spitefully. Don't do it because you have to. Do it because Jesus is calling you to. And that really sets us up that when we suffer, and people observe our suffering, what they see is not somebody fighting against everyone um, for our rights per se, but we're fighting for a greater cause, that we want everybody to know Jesus. We want everybody to hear the gospel. That's why Paul could turn a prison sentence into a missionary journey. I mean, we always say Paul had three missionary journeys, but did he really? Because we don't always count all of his missionary journeys in prison. And that's what he did. Paul's in prison and he's writing to the churches that he helped plant. And he's saying, hey, I'm praying for you. Here's a guy that's praying for the churches that he helped. And he's not asking them for prayer, even though he's in prison. He's not saying, pray for me. Uh, he does ask sometimes, but he's letting them know, like, I can't do anything but pray for you. And, and I want to help you. I want to make sure that you're okay because he's at peace on the inside. There's only one way that you can be like Paul in that situation. You've got to have a serious level of peace on the inside that only Jesus can give. And that comes from all these principles being 
appropriated in our lives, particularly when it matters the most. And that happens in suffering and difficulty. When things don't go our way, we have to ask the question, Jesus, what glorifies you the most in what I'm facing? So the purpose of our, our submission is always connected to the purpose of Jesus's mission. Don't you like how that rhymes? It just sounds right to me. Amen. I like a good rhyme once in a while. Go ahead and drop that on your friends and family. Amen. Peter goes on from there and he talks about how Jesus is our great example. And of course, we know that's true. He he says it he says it so many times. It's hard to mistake, it's hard to miss. But verse 21, he says this. He says, "For you have been called for this purpose since Christ has also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. Peter explains here, that our submission must be such that we are willing to suffer. And then he gives Jesus as an example. Jesus is our example for what life may be like, always in virtue and principle and character. But the way of Christ and that he he went to the cross, he gave his life for others. Um, We're not the propitiation for other people's sin, uh, but we are the extension of his mission and his message. And as a result of bearing his message, we will suffer at times. And we need to be willing to do so, so that people can hear about Jesus because Jesus gave his life for them. So he basically says he was the example. And this word literally in Greek, it means writing under, just like you write. It means writing under. And, and it what it represents is sort of like tracing paper. So if you were to have like a picture of a hand and you were to put tracing paper on top of that hand, and then you were to trace because you can see through the tracing paper. And so that's what the process is. The hand is the example for when you put the paper on top of it so that you can trace from. That's what Jesus's life is like. When he uses this in Greek, they would have understood the metaphor that he's actually employing here, that Jesus is the hand and we're trying to trace our life after his. He is our example. And the way he explains this is by saying, when Jesus was suffering, he was he had insults being hurled at him. A lot of it's really, if you look at it, it's verbal persecution. He obviously suffered violently. But what Peter mentions here is the verbal. He didn't revile in return. He didn't utter any insults or threats. He kept his mouth closed. That's actually one of the points. No deceit was found in his mouth. That's incredible, right? Because we can, we can say all kinds of things like, hey, when I suffer persecution, we often think persecution means violence, but we, we do suffer persecution for righteousness sake. We suffer rejection when we share the gospel or our testimony with somebody and they reject us. He's saying that we should not speak about that person or if they do or say something to us, we do not return it in like kind. Jesus did not speak back to his accusers. He just didn't. He let them do what they were going to do. And by that, they saw the virtue and the character and the nature of Christ. And in the same way, people are going to see the same about us. What we say with our words, how we respond to that which comes against us, it matters so much. And Jesus has to be our ultimate example. Who cares what anybody else did or said? 
What matters is what would Jesus do when this occurs in in our own life? And we entrust ourselves to the righteous judge. Jesus will judge us righteously for what we say and do. And so ultimately, all that matters is what he thinks about our activity and our behavior. In verse 24, it says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. Jesus is not only our example in suffering, he is our substitute for salvation. It says he bore our sins, which means that he paid the penalty for our guilty wrongdoing. He stayed the course, he suffered for righteousness, he bore our sins through his death on the cross, and as a result of what he did for us, he brought about our healing. And that isn't just physical healing, that's eternal healing. Um, the wound that we had occurred, that, that incurred, and the sin that was within us, that wrath of God that was going to be poured out against sin, that Jesus took that penalty. He took, he paid the price. He took our place. Sometimes we say he died in our place. And it is because of what he did and our response to it, receiving of it, that we have been made whole, not just temporarily, but this is an eternal thing that Jesus paid for. It's so important. And we go back to chapter one, when Peter uses the term, he is the spotless or blameless lamb of God, and he calls his blood precious. You remember that it's because his blood was not like any other man. It's because he was not, he was set apart. He was holy unto himself. No one and nothing is like the son of God. He paid for our sins. And our purpose in this life is to be like Jesus and hopefully lead people to Jesus. And this happens by living a life that makes the ignorance of people and however they treat us shameful because of the way we treat them. Friends, that's what Peter's going after today in in our lesson. He's saying, you're going to have, to those that are reading this letter, you're going to have people say and do all kinds of things, but you cannot be as they are to you. You have to be like the one you're following. Jesus has to be your ultimate example, his words, his ways. And when that happens, when we become like Christ and what comes out of our life looks more and more like him, he says that it is shameful. It is shameful. What it brings upon those that do this to us is a type of shame where they're convicted. I mean, some of the conviction that comes upon the world happens because Christians really live Christian. And that's really what Peter says to us today. And so we want to be encouraged that no matter what we're facing, what we're going through, God can help us. He can strengthen us. He can fill us with the Holy Spirit, and he can certainly make us like Jesus. He wouldn't ask us to do something that wasn't possible, but it is only possible by the power of his blood and the power of his Holy Spirit. And so that's what we ask for. If you're facing something today, ask the Holy Spirit to fill you, flow through you, make you like Jesus. In fact, why don't we just do that as we close uh, chapter two of 1 Peter today? We'll ask the Lord to make us more like Christ. So pray with me if you can. Father, we thank you today for your love. We thank you for your precious blood. Thank you that you paid a price for us um, that we could never pay. You did what we could never do so that we could have what we could not earn. And I thank you for that, for each one that's watching. And I pray, Father, for you to strengthen us, that if we're going through some type of verbal persecution, whether it's family, friends, coworkers, or anyone else, that you would make us more like Jesus, that the question that we ask and the life that we live would would be that we just want to follow our Savior. And so I pray for me, for us, that this is what we would do, that we would follow you, that we would receive from your Spirit, and we would manifest the character of Christ. We thank you for that today in Jesus' mighty name. 
and everyone said, amen. God bless you today. Thank you for tuning into Bible Foundations. I'm loving going through 1 Peter with you. And join me next time for 1 Peter chapter 3. Amen. Amen.